Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Uh, good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. We've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the ongoing problems around the Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft. We'll also talk about virtual reality uh, being used in the treatment of pain and touch base with Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone on a couple of different topics. But we're going to start the show as we always do this time of the week with our civic update with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, who joins us by phone this morning. Good morning, Ken. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. Uh, so why don't we start off with uh, the property tax uh, increase figure. You guys uh, every year launch down sort of a long and tangled road uh, to reach a final property tax number. Council has yet to vote on this thing, but uh, you got through the supplemental budget list, 12 of 13 items scratched off. One didn't make the cut. We arrive at a 2.96% property tax hike. Is that something people will stomach or no? Well, you know, uh, if you compare it with other uh, communities of like size, I think it's pretty good, and uh, I think it's pretty transparent the way that we've reached it. But there's obviously uh, people in Kamloops, as in every other city, that uh, can't afford their homes anymore, and uh, that concerns myself and the rest of council, so we try to do what we can to keep uh, the numbers as low as possible and still maintain the level of service that people are expecting in this city. Will there ever be a time, Ken, when that number comes down or, or flat lines or, or, or no? We're just looking at increases uh, till infinity and beyond? No, uh, you know, the number uh, is, you know, we're not collecting taxes just for the sake of doing that. Uh, the number is uh, really driven by the assessed value in the community. And some communities where there has been huge uh, spurts in growth and a big increase in their tax roll, have seen uh, smaller uh, increases and, in fact, decreases in taxes. <laughs> has happened in about a decade, but uh, I know uh, Vernon was that way at one time. And, uh, you know, the problem with that, though, is that you can uh, be robbing Peter to pay Paul and you get a lot of wild fluctuations within your tax rate. So you have to be careful. But uh, I think that uh, if we can keep this in the 2% range uh, right now, uh, we're doing pretty good with the kinds of pressures that we have on us for uh, inflation and a lot of downloading. Now, uh, council's got a vote on this thing. Do you anticipate any problems there? Will this, uh, will this go through council with a fair amount of ease or no? You know, uh, every councillor has their, their stamp on this in, in some place. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was a joint project uh, to build this uh, budget with uh, our staff. And uh, I would be very surprised if uh, at the 11th hour they turned it down. But uh, anything can happen when you subject a, a tax increase to a vote. But, you know, the, the reality is that we still have to pay police. We still have to operate fire halls. We want to run our water system. We need uh, sanitary sewer systems. So these are things that aren't going to go away. And that's the reality of running a city, just like there's realities in running your own home. So uh, people have to understand that the kinds of things that we're expending money on are not frivolous. And they are uh, things that we heard from the public that they uh, really uh, felt that they could afford and wanted to pay for. Uh, before we move on to other topics, uh, the supplemental budget list, uh, as you as you referred to, a lot of councillors have their fingerprints on this thing. Uh, where are your fingerprints and, and what item on the supplemental budget list or in the budget overall is one that you're really advocating for? Well, you know, I, I have said before that uh, asset management is something that I strongly believe in. I mean, the public have entrusted us with uh, uh, half a billion dollars worth of public assets, and uh, it is only responsible governance that we will uh, plan to maintain those assets. And uh, so that uh, that whole piece, and that's fully a half a percent increase on our taxes this year, uh, that is, I think, uh, prudent. Uh, you know, they, they laugh and call me a the water and sewer mayor, but, you know, those are the kinds of bread and butter issues that we need to do as a municipality before we start thinking about uh, a lot of the other nice-to-do things. 
uh, on that supplemental budget list with some more money for the Stuart Wood uh, conversion from uh, what was a school to uh, what will ideally be a cultural center. Uh, this has been a process that is taking a while. Where are we at, and, and are we any closer to achieving the final vision here? Well, uh, yesterday, Council uh, approved uh, notionally uh, $200,000 worth of uh, uh, consulting fees that will go into uh, design drawings and uh, a, a more fulsome vision of this. But there's some pieces missing. Uh, first of all, we need a letter of understanding with the TTS. And uh, we understand that their council is taking some time to review uh, the draft of that. And, and that's certainly prudent on their part. And uh, as soon as we get that back from them, uh, then we will uh, take that to the provincial government and see that we can get the title returned to us uh, without the codicil that requires that it only be used as a school. Uh, after we get that, then we would engage the uh, consultants that we have uh, put the money aside for now, and we will get some working drawings that we can then take to uh, the federal and provincial governments, and in particular Heritage Canada, so that we can uh, start to get some uh, senior government support for uh, this kind of initiative. And, and I'm excited about it. I think that this is, uh, you know, a, a true commitment between uh, the city and the Tecumlips Tishikwepmek to celebrate uh, the culture of this region. And, uh, you know, they have a 10,000 plus year history here and uh, those stories need to be told. And, and uh, so do the uh, stories in the history of the city of Camels. And to do that in a joint facility and celebrate everything from art to language in the, in the same place, I think is unique and uh, something that we should uh, really strive for. Uh, Ken, you guys had a busy day yesterday, supplemental budget in the morning, council meeting in the afternoon, and a public hearing last night, which I understand didn't exactly go late into the evening. Uh, the issue at hand was how to deal with marijuana production facilities, not retail facilities, but production facilities. Uh, how did it go last night? Yeah, you know, I was surprised because uh, generally the word cannabis uh, draws a crowd. But last night uh, there was uh, nobody there to speak on that issue and there was neither any correspondence. And, and really the issue was where do we locate cannabis production uh, facilities within the city of Kamloops? And uh, so those would be now on uh, industrial uh, land, uh, I-2, I-3, I, I believe, and then the... Uh, the ALR land, uh, which is interesting because cannabis can only be grown on concrete, so those are kind of uh, you know alienating uh, ALR lands. But uh, that didn't seem to be an issue with people, so uh, uh, we have that in place now, and uh, so uh, we can go forward if there are applicants that wish to, you know, put up uh, some of these facilities. Uh, I know there's a huge facility uh, just uh, near Falkland now, and. Uh, that is uh, interesting to watch it be developed and uh, anticipating that there is uh, a need for additional production facilities in British Columbia based on demand. I would be uh, optimistic that some of those would locate in Camelot. Were you surprised by the lack of interest in this, considering uh, the interest in marijuana overall, or no? Yeah, I was surprised, actually. Uh, but... Uh, you know, you, you hold the public hearings, you advertise them, and uh, people come or they don't come. The Blazers had a great night last night. Maybe that was uh, what took our crowd. Ken, <laughs> uh, some other issues to toss your way. Um, uh, I know your former history is uh, Camelot School Board Chair. They've reopened Westside Elementary, are going to do that, uh, hopefully in time for the new school year. Uh, there is a city component to this involving street safety. Uh, I'm not sure how you how much you're in the loop on that or not, but will there be changes from the city side around Westside or no? Yeah, we uh, had a joint meeting with the uh, city council and the school board, uh, board to board last week, and this was one of the items that uh, came up. We've had some really good success working with them around Westmount School, and we anticipate the same will happen with uh, the Westside Elementary School. Uh, you know, that uh, is further out on Westside Road and uh, less traffic volume, so We'll look towards, uh, you know, reinstituting school zone signs and uh, that kind of traffic calming uh, initiatives out there. But uh, we work very closely with the uh, Board of Education on these matters. And, 
you know, uh, certainly uh, welcome the additional space for uh, the uh, potential growth of Westside. What would those changes be, Ken? Just, I, I'm assuming a speed limit reduction for sure. Anything else? You know, I would uh, leave that to our transportation engineers. Uh, they haven't uh, dug into that yet. We have until September to put those in place. So uh, I'm sure those discussions will be going on at the staff level. All right. Uh, on the issue of crime, uh, um, uh, an issue was put to, or a question was put to uh, local superintendent Sid Leckie about whether this city needs an anti-gang squad. We have brought up the uh, CFSEU on occasion uh, to do some uh, do some work in our community, uh, but do we need something more full-time here or no? Well, certainly in the first quarter of 2019 we need one, but uh, whether that's uh, you know a sustained need or not is the important question. Uh, right now, uh, we've been dealing with the Southeast District, and uh, they have been uh, most uh, uh, responsive to our requests for additional resources in Camelot as and when we need it. And uh, those resources come in, uh, they are thorough, and they are effective. So, uh, you know, whether or not things settle down here or, or whether or not this becomes uh, an area where we're going to have to, uh, you know, have anti-gang uh, member, members here, on a permanent basis, uh, remains to be seen. And final question to you, and I don't know if you can answer or not. I just want to ask anyway, because I know the two Kamloops MLAs have been making a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, raising a lot of concerns about this. But uh, changes to ALR land and how it's conserved seem to indicate that uh, if somebody wants to uh, an exemption or do whatever, they will now have to go through local government in order to go to the ALC for changes off the cuff. That would seem to me perhaps to be a little bit of downloading on time and labor on local government's part. Any sense of what these changes might mean for you guys at City Hall yet or no? Well, you know, I, I think that what they're trying to do is avoid, uh, you know, going through a lengthy ALR process only to find that the subdivision that the person was proposing isn't going to get approved by local government. So it's a kind of chicken and an egg situation. But I'll tell you this, the city of Camelops does not have uh, ag agrologists on staff, and we do not have the capacity to uh, assess uh, arable lands and agricultural potential. That's not our job. So, uh, you know, if they're looking for us to make a pre-screen on whether land is good for agricultural purposes, that's not in the cards, and that is clearly downloading. Uh, but I guess it remains to be seen how, uh, you know, we approach these things. We might just decide to send them all to the ALC or not, but uh, it hasn't been something that's come up uh, uh, around council yet. Okay, but it does sound like it's something that's that's edging its way up on your concern list, though. Well, certainly that issue that, uh, you know, they would expect us to be able to, uh, you know, make determinations about, uh, you know, how suitable a ver various pieces of property are for agricultural production. That's not municipalities' jobs. Ken, always a pleasure. I know you're busy this morning. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you for the opportunity, Shane. Okay, Ken, appreciate it. Bye. Okay, cheers, bye. And that was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian with our weekly civic update, all things Kamloops politics and current issues swirling around uh, the municipality. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone will join us. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by the MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone. Good morning, Todd. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm doing well. How are you? You can hear the rustling of the speaking notes there. Yeah, no, I put, I put those away right, right over here, right over there. All right. That's uh, a quick change of topic. Yeah. I agree with you. Winter's over. <laughs> yeah, do you? <laughs> I do. 17 by Monday. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I think that's awesome. And you're right. It does. It's like a... It's Is, like, was this not the... You've lived here for long. Um, was this not the weirdest winter? I mean, uh, it was November, mild. December, and January was the mildest winter I can remember uh, in spending 35 years in Camelops. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we paid for it a bit in February and March, but come on. It was a pretty good winter overall. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah. I mean, last winter was snowmageddon. It was snow everywhere. And this yeah. winter, anyway, we're yeah. off topic here in rambling. Um, you were at uh, you were at last night's vaping uh, symposium. Uh, Dr. Crank was in town. I love that name. Anyway, uh, Dr. Crank was in town talking about vaping among kids, which is a big issue. We've done good work on addressing smoking, uh, smoking sensation, and now we got kids wandering around puffing on vaping machines all over the place with unknown health impacts. So uh, what did you hear last night, and, and what's your personal interest in the issue? Well, I went last night, and I was actually pleased that there was uh, a good couple hundred people there. Uh, the room was was pretty much full. Uh, a big shout-out to School District 73 for hosting it in the first place. This is a, a rapidly emerging public health issue. Uh, Dr. Crank uh, from the University uh, of British Columbia in Okanagan uh, put on a very good presentation, a very factual, thoughtful uh, overview of, uh, of what vaping is and what the harmful effects are uh, for our, our kids. Um, I, I was there last night wearing two hats. First and foremost, I was there as a dad. You know, I've got yeah. three daughters. My oldest is in grade nine. Uh, I've got two, two girls coming up behind her. And uh, my wife and I have just been uh, come, uh, absolutely blown away at, 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 at uh, how rampant uh, vaping has become in uh, our high schools, not just here in Kamloops, but across the country yeah. uh, and and even just in the last year year and a half from our daughter transitioning from grade eight to grade nine uh, we cannot believe how prevalent it is uh, the US Surgeon General uh, uh, in December of, of last year uh, so a few months ago declared uh, vaping a, a, a public health epidemic in the United States uh, and uh, we uh, we do know from from research that uh, is is beginning to emerge uh, rapidly that uh, the, there are harmful effects and, and that the use is, uh, is, is on the rise in our high schools. So uh, I've been uh, throwing myself into it to try and figure out what's going on uh, and, and how, do we, how, do we, um, how do we get through to our youth uh, that, uh, yeah. that this is a harmful activity and, and, and get through to parents, uh, that parents need to be engaged in this discussion as well. So how are we falling down on this? Because, I mean, and I get it, right? I mean, you and I were talking before we, before we turned on the microphones about uh, how things, somehow good advice can bounce off young kids like rubber bullets, right? And I've got a nephew that frustrates me when I try to talk facts with him. Right. So where are we falling down? How, how can we address the problem? How do you get through with kids? And, and how are we sort of failing on, on, the, on the regulatory side? Well, uh, first on the regulatory side, uh, British Columbia is one of the leaders in the country. We, we, when you look at the legislation that's in place, uh, all of the, the rules that pertain to cigarette smoking, traditional cigarette smoking, uh, applies to vaping. So you, you can't sell vaping products to minors. Uh, that's against the law. You, the, the advertising and promotional materials and so forth uh, are banned on the, uh, in, in as much with vaping as with cigarettes. Uh, you can't smoke uh, or, or vape in a vehicle if you have kids under the age of 16. And you know, on and on and on, the, 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 the rules are in place. Uh, but clearly, uh, there are... There is a gap here in terms of um, getting through to youth uh, in our schools who um, are trying it and, and doing it in, in record numbers. So what I'm increasingly learning here is that uh, I, I believe there are some gaps with respect to uh, enforcement at the retail level. Uh, somehow these, these devices uh, are making their way into the hands of, uh, of, of way too many of our kids. Uh, secondly, we've got to work really hard uh, in pressuring the federal government to ban uh, flavored uh, juice, uh, which is, uh, as, as Dr. Crank mentioned earlier this morning, is primarily targeted at youth. Uh, you know, a gummy bear flavor, watermelon flavor, uh, you know, candy, yeah. candy cane, that kind of stuff. Uh, that can only be done at the federal level. So we've got to work with uh, Health Canada and the federal government to, uh, to ban flavoring. Uh, and thirdly, we've got to do a better job res- providing the resources to school districts uh, so that in every single uh, high school, grades 8 through 12, there are um, effective uh, prevention programs in place that, that, um, that have strong, measurable components to them. Um, there is a pilot that's, uh, that's been going on in Vernon uh, this year. Uh, at a secondary school there uh, through Interior Health. Uh, and it, um, it, while on the one hand, it, it shows that vaping use has, has increased with grade nines by 50%, or by, by uh, actually 100% year over year, um, uh, it, it also shows that uh, um, with, uh, with, with those kids in grades nine and 10 that have actually been through this preventure program, it's called, uh, there's been a very significant decline in, uh, in vaping usage. So there's some hopeful signs with some of these programs 
programs at, uh, at effective strategies to actually get through to our kids. Uh, we need those, those programs in all of our high schools uh, in Kamloops and across the province, and we need those programs now. All right. Um, a couple other issues I want to toss at you while you're here. Uh, chief among them, uh, and I talked about this with uh, Camels North MLA Peter Millibar yesterday, but you're the community affairs critic. Uh, so I'm curious on the on the ALR changes side, a real specific question. Um, my thought was if, you, if you're forced to go through local government uh, to get your ALR changes to the ALC, um, is that a downloading of time and labor for people like the city of Kamloops, the TNRD, local governments across BC? Well, I, I've been on the phone through the, this week uh, talking with and, and, and late last week with, with a number of mayors and regional district uh, elected officials. And yes, there is a, a very significant concern amongst uh, locally elected officials that uh, there's going to be a significant increase in workload uh, that they're going to be facing uh, as uh, individual private landowners uh, come forward and uh, with, with the desire to exclude a, a portion of, uh, of of their 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 property from the agricultural land reserve for whatever the reason might be and and you and I both know that that exclusions uh, typically are denied um, it's very very rare that, that an exclusion is uh, is is actually endorsed by by the the ALR but the, the 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 change that's taking place really shifts the onus for championing that uh, that exclusion from uh, the private landowner dealing directly with the agricultural land reserve and frankly I think property owner should have you know has the, the the right uh, to uh, to to uh, champion uh, the the use of their land uh, yeah. that they own and that they live on and that they work and that they cherish, uh, and we're, the, the NDP want to shift that to uh, to uh, local governments and expect local governments or a First Nation government to uh, to champion uh, that exclusion uh, application. It's 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 absolutely outrageous, uh, and it will result in a in a significant increase in in workload uh, for local governments. So yes, that would. Uh, definitely be a, a classic definition of uh, downloading from uh, pro- the provincial government to local governments. Okay. Um, the BCLC story, uh, you came, you broke that uh, with us a bunch of weeks ago on uh, the scrapping of the downtown headquarters. Uh, development since on two fronts. Um, today, we got a group of business people here in Kamloops uh, who are going to meet with the Attorney General over the BCLC headquarters issue. Uh, some <coughs> down the lower mainland, some teleconferencing in here in Kamloops. Uh, the other one is, I know that you and Peter Millibar had wanted to tour uh, the BCLC headquarters here in Kamloops as well as another facility down the lower mainland to get a clear picture of sort of what is going on and to see, I guess, ideally to address this this concern about leakage of staff. So uh, first off on, on the tours for you and, and Pete, uh, where are we on that front? Well, uh, you know, I, I take my hat off to uh, the uh, uh, to, to BC Lotteries uh, and the Attorney General. They they have uh, very recently granted uh, our request for uh, personal tours of both uh, the BC Lotteries office in Vancouver as well as the one in Kamloops. So Peter and I will be uh, touring uh, the, those two offices. I believe we're in Vancouver uh, taking a look at that office on April fifteenth. That's a Monday, and then uh, the following Thursday, the eighteenth of April. April, uh, we'll be touring uh, the BCLC office here in Kamloops. And again, we, we just want to see with our own eyes uh, w- what actually is the truth insofar as uh, as the complement of staffing in, in these two buildings. We, we keep hearing with the Vancouver office that uh, it's full, bursting at the seams, and then we hear the next day from a different official that, no, actually it's half empty. Um, and we hear from somebody else, well, it's actually full, but not entirely with BCLC people. I, I, you know, we want to get the story straight here. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, building upon the, the the really good work of the the dozen or so uh, organizations from Kamloops that are heading down today to, as you mentioned, to meet with David Eby, uh, uh, we want to make sure that this that this uh, issue is not uh, doesn't go um, you know unresolved moving forward. Uh, it wasn't so much about a new building on downtown Kamloops. It was about the 250 net new jobs which were attached uh, to that building that are only possible because of that uh, that new building. Uh, that's important employment uh, opportunities here in Kamloops that have been lost. Uh, so we want to understand, uh, uh, you know, if there's any possibility of reversing this decision. That's why the work of this uh, these groups is so important today, and and we'll follow that up with uh, with our tours on April 15th and April 18th. Do you get a sense that there may be some flex here? I don't recall in my time to see a group of of civic business people get together 
uh, to this level and then go from, you know, a Kamloops, a Kelowna, Prince George, and march down to meet with anybody from the province in Vancouver over an issue like this. Uh, will this do something, do you think? Well, at, at, the, at the very least, uh, and, and, and this is what Peter and I have been saying all along, at the very least, all of us, uh, the business community, uh, elected officials, uh, mayor and council, all of us need to come together and, and put a marker down on the table here uh, with respect to, uh, to uh, the, the displeasure and, and the, the lack of, uh, of support uh, for this, uh, the, the, the displeasure we feel and the lack of support for, this, for what we believe is, a, is, is the wrong decision that represents a broken uh, promise, a, a commitment that was made to the people of Kamloops uh, that um, it has now been revoked. Uh, and, and we've got to put that marker down so that this provincial government understands that the, that the community here, the people of Kamloops are not going to be pushed around. So uh, on one track, yeah, we're, we're not going to let up on this. We want to reverse this decision. Uh, but on a separate track, concurrently, we, we want to make sure this government understands that the next time there's an issue of this magnitude that's uh, they're discussed around the cabinet table, we want them to know that the people of Kalums are not pushovers. We're, we're not going to take it. Uh, and that's why I think it is significant that you've got, you know, 10 or 12 business leaders representing about 6,000 businesses in Kamloops uh, heading down to, to, to uh, Vancouver uh, to, to carry exactly that message uh, to David Eby and the NDP. Um, another issue that's been bubbling away that uh, you've been talking to me about and want to kind of take public now uh, is there something going on with the land titles office here in Kamloops? So what's going on here? What can you tell me? <clears throat> well, we, we don't really know, but it's a, it, it sort of feels uh, similar to uh, the, the BCLC story. We, uh, Peter and I have been hearing from a number of folks uh, who are, are closely associated with the, the land titles office here in Kamloops. And uh, there, there is increasing anxiety that there may be uh, efforts underfoot to uh, either entirely move out of Kamloops the land titles function uh, or to significantly downsize it. Now, uh, I, I, again, we, we, uh, we, we, we tried to, to get a straight answer from Doug Donaldson, the minister uh, responsible, uh, and we couldn't get an answer. We got a letter back from him saying, oh, you need to talk to the land titles people. Uh, we have reached out to the land titles, uh, the, the president and CEO of the land title authority, uh, and uh, we're awaiting a response uh, from them. But it, it is a bit unsettling. Again, like BCLC, and we said the weeks before that story broke, um, I, I hope that, I mean, the best outcome here is that BC or the land title folks uh, step forward and say, no, no, nothing, nothing going on here. The, the jobs that are in Kamloops in the land title office here are secure and, and, and will be here for many, many, many years to come. Uh, it doesn't feel that way at this particular moment, Shane. How many jobs are roughly, do you know? Uh, I don't know what the exact number is. Okay. Uh, I think there's several dozen, uh, but uh, again, these are good-paying jobs, and they're and they're, it's a critical function. When you talk to uh, to the legal community and you talk to the real estate uh, community here in Kamloops, it's a critical function uh, to to have, and, and and it's been here for for decades, and it's also a function of of government that we've had to fight long and hard uh, to to keep. There have been efforts by successive provincial governments over the years to move these uh, this function out and centralize uh, in the lower mainland um and uh you know we've got to be again as a community uh vigilant and uh if if there's even the slightest hint of that taking place we've got to push back real hard okay so you're just waiting for a letter back with somebody you, you yeah. bet All yeah right. okay um a couple more issues just to toss at you because you're the community affairs critic um marijuana legal now um developments on the financial side we're now hearing the revenues flowing in aren't as quite as high as we might have expected which to some degree fair enough there's not a whole lot of stores out there and all that kind of stuff we're not a fully fledged industry yet but uh, as we speak UBCM and the province are uh, talking negotiating whatever you want to term it about some kind of revenue taxation sharing deal uh, your take on what communities should get or how that process should be unfolding well, our position all along has been that uh, local communities, which bear a significant uh, amount of the burden uh, with this new regulatory in place, uh, absolutely need to have uh, uh, an, a, a fair share of, uh, of the revenues that flow from uh, the, the, the sale of cannabis. Uh, I have uh, been talking to a number of, of mayors in my role as municipal affairs critic, and, uh, and there's, there's growing impatience uh, almost, uh, certainly frustration, uh, that it's 
taking so long to uh, to get a definitive uh, an, you know definitive details from the provincial government there's no question the uh, local communities will be cut in uh, to the, uh, the 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 revenue uh, pie um, but they still don't know um, to what degree and and uh, that's concerning and there's really no logical explanation as to why it's taking so long um, but I will say to your pre- prior point uh, all indications are suggesting that revenues will be significantly lower uh, than what um, what people have projected even on the lower end of their of their projections um, I think the main reason for that is uh, I'm certainly hearing from lots of folks that uh, the price points that have been arrived at and all the layering on of additional taxes and fees yeah. um, in the in the legal market uh, far far higher uh, overall cost than what you can still purchase uh, these products uh, from from the black market um, as long as that significant gap exists um, you know, I, I, I think the, the ultimate goal here was to try and, and, and get people out of the black market and uh, into a legal environment that appears not to be happening in the numbers that uh, we were originally uh, suggested would, would be the case. What's the what's your dealer getting your stuff for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, man. <laughs> Are we still on the air? <laughs> joking, joking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, final question, just because you're former uh, Minister of Transportation, but I'm just sort of curious. Uh, uh, federally, of course, we have this uh, SNC-Lavalin link controversy with the with the Prime Minister's office and all that kind of stuff. Um, with the Patella Bridge project, which you were involved with to some degree in your ministry before the change mm-hmm. in government, uh, SNC-Lavalin has come on as one of the final several bidders for the new Patella Bridge. Uh, just totally out of curiosity, in your mind, is that fair enough that they're, they're free to bid and to do the thing should the government you know rule them out how, how would you tackle that well yeah i think we have to separate uh you know kind of our our, our emotions on this issue from uh from reason uh i i don't think that that it would be lawful to uh to cut them out of a, out of provincial infrastructure projects uh one one could try to do that and i would suspect uh, um you know would be would be hit with a pretty significant uh, lawsuit uh, would uh, you know and it's the taxpayers that would be hit with that bill there's no question this company has got a a, a very, very um, uh, lengthy and questionable history, a patchwork of, um, of, of poor, uh, well, terrible decisions that, uh, you know, spanning many countries and all the rest of it. That's all being dealt with uh, in, in federal jurisdiction. And, and, uh, and if they do, if, this, if, this tri- if a trial does proceed at the federal level and, uh, and they are found guilty, uh, they, they are sub- potentially subject to being banned from federal infrastructure projects for 10 years. That doesn't apply to, uh, to provincial infrastructure projects. And, and, I, and I, while there may be some that, uh, you know, might think that that's worthy of conversation, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely certain that that would be lawful. Uh, so, uh, so we'll see how this unfolds. Perfect stuff. Todd, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Have a great day. That was the MLA for Kamloops South. Todd Stone. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour here on Radio NL. On the other side, well, we'll talk about virtual reality and chronic pain. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, Interesting topic to discuss now. Uh, We all are aware of the takeoff of virtual reality, and it appears that the the aspects or the ways that it can be used seem to surpass uh, just casual entertainment. Real pleasure to be joined on the program now uh, by the Associate Nursing Professor at UBC, Dr. Bernie Garrett. Uh, Good morning, Bernie. How are you? Good morning. Fine, thanks. Well, uh, I wanted to bring you on because this is a, a fascinating topic. About 6 million Canadians suffer from uh, various forms of chronic pain for various uh, and differing reasons. Uh, and it seems there's been some work here where virtual reality can play a role in alleviating that chronic pain, which leads to the question, how? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and virtual reality has been used for quite a while with acute pain where it's used, for example, uh, with patients undergoing dressing changes for burns, which are quite painful, where they've used virtual reality with good results to reduce the pain. Um, so we've been exploring using it with chronic pain patients. And particularly, it seems to work because it is a very powerful form of distraction and distracts the brain away from the pain quite considerably. 
Is this an environment thing? And by that, I mean, uh, you got, is this uh, for people who are um, in a hospital or in a setting um, where their mind needs to be occupied as opposed to, you know, I don't know what the difference would be between putting on a virtual reality headset and, and undergoing uh, whatever you guys have in there to, say, going for an interesting hike or something? Yeah, it, it actually works uh, at a number of different levels. Um, it can be used in hospitals or clinics. or these, We're doing our research actually in people's homes where they're taking VR headsets and equipment home and using it in their own homes. And what we found is that um, the environments that work best for people vary quite considerably. Generally, they're in two camps. People either um, find good results with problem-solving, what we call cognitive activities, where they're actually having to solve puzzles in virtual reality, or the other type of people that uh, prefer something different are people who prefer sort of meditative, inward, reflective-type experiences. Um, but they both seem to work because VR gives you this sense of what we call presence, of being somewhere else in a different world, uh, and that is a very powerful form of uh, distraction, much more so than, say, watching a video, reading a book, or listening to music. Do we have a good sense yet of the neurological sort of uh, base for, for why we feel pain? It seems to me when we use the word distraction, but uh, we're really just, you know, our brain is now considering something else and kind of stamping out the pain receptors, I assume. Uh, how does that, do we understand that and, and how is that playing into this whole thing? Well, we don't really understand that, and that's sort of <laughs> the uh, million-dollar question that pain researchers have been working on for quite you know, a number of years is how exactly pain is mediated in the brain. But, but we do know a number of things that the brain has a very powerful effect on how we perceive pain. Uh, for example, my colleagues who work with um, a condition called endometriosis, a very painful condition for women, um, find that often the people with the worst pathology, the worst um, sort of physical manifestations of the disease aren't necessarily the people who have the worst pain, um, which is often people who have far less um, pathology of the, of the disease. So the brain is mediating how we experience pain. And chronic pain sufferers often tell us that if they have multiple sites of chronic pain, they can only really focus on one at any one time. Um, and uh, even though they, the, the others are in the background, when they're focusing on one type of pain, the pain elsewhere goes away. So we're looking at how virtual reality can be used to give a, a sense, a very powerful sort of mediating sense of distraction. Uh, and we're also doing some EEG studies where we're exploring brain, brain waves with people undergoing um, virtual reality. So we can at least see if there's anything specific that we can see in manifestations of virtual reality uh, in brain activity. I assume that the distraction of the pain relief comes uh, specifically when they're immersed in their VR world. Uh, does it last beyond that or no? Well, that's an interesting question, one part of our research. So we're looking at pain before, during the experience and afterwards, and then we're also looking at a weekly um, sort of score of, of how their pain goes overall over a period of time for a month. So we, we don't actually have that data yet, but um, the, the data we seem to have so far suggests there is a short-term benefit after the experience, but uh, as to whether that lasts any longer, um, that's it's a question we haven't been able to answer yet, but we're hoping our research will provide some direction in that area. Now, I remember when virtual reality first came out, and uh, uh, I, I remember that it was, I forget the time, I think it was about 15 minutes that you could immerse yourself, and then there was fears that there would be sort of cognitive um, impacts past that if you if you spend a significant amount of time in a virtual reality setting. I'm not sure if, if the technology has changed, whether that's been adjusted or not, but uh, is there caps on how long a person can spend in, in a VR sort of situation or no? Sure, there's not really any real caps in terms of the experience. What there is is in comfort levels. Um, there's a number of problems still with virtual reality which we've yet to fully address. One is the fact that some people get a little bit of motion sickness, um, and most of the experiences now have ironed that out, but some of them still have a bit, particularly those that involve fast movement or flying. Um, so some people are susceptible to that. Um, because your brain tells you you're sitting in a chair. but uh, Sorry, your brain tells you you're in a virtual reality experience, but you're actually sitting in a chair. So there's a mismatch um, there which cause, can cause motion sickness. But the other thing is that you're focusing on a screen which is literally a, a couple of centimeters in front of your eyes. Um, so after about half an hour, pe most people find um, you know, that they need a break from it because otherwise you can get a little bit of eye strain with it. But other than that, the experience itself, there isn't any reason or limits why people can't spend longer. 
Uh, you discussed the different settings of uh, puzzle solving or sort of more uh, mental exercises that, that you're using in virtual reality space. Uh, we're all aware of sort of the entertainment aspect of virtual reality, be it uh, video game playing and doing whatever. But apparently, you know, if you put somebody in sort of a, a your standard, you know, PlayStation, Nintendo video game virtual reality experience, maybe they're out there, I don't know, fighting Darth Vader with a lightsaber or something, um, that doesn't seem to work as well as, as the things that you're doing. Why not? Why is there that, that difference? Yeah, so we did some pilot work on what sort of experiences work best for people with pain and chronic pain. Uh, and obviously some of them are not designed to sort of um, stimulate the pain. They're designed for recreation. And of course, most of the recreational games are uh, first-person shooters where you're, you're out shooting monsters or uh, on battlefields and things like that. Now, obviously, that's not a great experience because it raises um, your levels of epinephrine and, and anxiety, and obviously that's probably going to aggravate your pain rather than reduce it. Um, well, that's the common sort of wisdom on, on the use of those games. And we have found that those games aren't particularly positive for people with um, pain. However, um, applications that involve the brain in different ways, such as relaxation or solving puzzles, um, don't have that effect. Um, so th this is the problem. Most of the off-the-shelf games and most of the video games, as we know, are marketed um, uh, younger people and they're the sort of games that involve um, sort of frenetic uh, activity uh, and some of them are even horror games and of course none of those are particularly beneficial for someone with chronic pain. So I guess uh, we're down the last couple of minutes here, uh, Doctor, but I guess uh, this is a fascinating sort of new field. Uh, obviously, it's important to address people who are dealing with chronic pain and find ways to alleviate their suffering, but uh, where does this go now? What's the next steps as you guys kind of gather data and determine uh, the overall impacts of this, or this sort of VR aspect of dealing with chronic pain? Well, at the moment, we're finishing our study, so we're still recruiting. So if there's people with uh, particularly cancer patients who have chronic pain, we'd love to hear from you because um, we could recruit you in um, to our study. But uh, also, we hope to finish this study by the end of the year and have a sense of how well virtual reality can work with uh, chronic pain as an ad additional measure. And, of course, it's, it's such an important area because often people with chronic pain aren't well served by traditional medical remedies uh, and often end up taking, you know, large... Doses of opioids to control their pain, which are very disabilitating. So this research hopefully will show that you know we can have at least another tool in the toolbox to help people manage that pain. But there's also other applications for VR as well, uh, which we're exploring in health, particularly in rehabilitation care. So it looks like VR does have a promising future in healthcare. Fascinating times, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> Doctor, thanks for taking a few minutes to uh, spend some time explaining that. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. There we go. That's Dr. Bernie Garrett, who is uh, the Associate Nursing Professor at the University of British Columbia. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll dive into the uh, controversy and issues surrounding Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, we're going to dive into the issue around the Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft, but the interview you're going to listen to next uh, with Dr. Carl Moore uh, was recorded a little earlier this morning prior to Federal Transportation Minister Mark Garneau ordering the grounding of all Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft, uh, which is having a ripple effect out, uh, which will continue throughout the day as far as news stories and headlines. So just want to keep that in mind and frame the interview uh, so you know that up front. So without further ado, here's my conversation uh, with Dr. Carl Moore, who is the McGill University's Dace Hotel Faculty of Management Professor on the Boeing Max 8 controversy. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Not bad yourself. Oh, yeah, I am very well. Uh, listen, I know you're uh, keeping tune, as we all are, to this situation involving Boeing's uh, 737 MAX 8 aircraft. As we know, uh, a good chunk of the world, uh, the European Union, China, places like that, have uh, either grounded the aircraft or uh, actually banned them from their airspace. Uh, the FFA in the States is, is kind of hedging their bets, saying, well, listen, we're, we're going to take our time with this. There's no real reason to ground anything yet. Uh, and we're waiting this morning for uh, Canada's 
Canadians transportation minister who is supposed to have a news conference this morning has since been delayed to clarify the Canadian position but so far we are grounding the planes here uh, from a business perspective I, I know Boeing's taking a shellacking on the stock exchange on this thing but uh, as this plays out what's your sort of observation well, something where um, we'll see what the minister has to say is there'll be some announcement later on today. And it could go either way. What they said uh, yesterday was they were standing behind uh, their decision to allow it to keep flying. Um, now, there's three fleets in Canada that have it, WestJet Air Canada and, uh, I forget, the Sunwing. And Sunwing has decided not to fly, not because they don't believe in the safety of the plane, but because they were to fly to Europe and Europe's not allowing it. So we'll see what happens, but the U.S. and Canada are relatively outliers in much of the world in terms of major countries that are allowing it to keep flying. They have the black boxes. They're listening to that now. It generally takes weeks or months to sort out the reason for a crash, but they're clearly looking to see if it's similar to the uh, Indonesian crash about four months ago to see if it was the same cause. Because if it is, uh, that makes it even more urgent to take the action of it's another reason pilot error and that sort of thing, then it calms things down a bit. What I'm seeing out there right now is a lot of nervous people. Uh, I note on my social media feeds over the last couple of days, I either have friends who uh, have trips planned who are looking at their itinerary and go, oh my God, I've got one of these planes in, in a leg of my trip. Or uh, conversely, people are looking from Clarity from Air Canada who are going to some of these airspaces where the plane isn't allowed and now there's some flight uh, chaos. Or they're looking at their itinerary and saying, I want out, I want a different plane. And then there's again, flight chaos. For for certainty's sake, for for business's sake for people's sort of uh, peace of mind should something be done to clarify things or no well the ministry will be clarifying it what you know it's either yes or no either they're allowed to fly or not and he's been listening to a panel yesterday to get their advice and their two cents worth on it so we'll see how it goes um from that viewpoint air canada westjet at this point are not allowing you to cancel unless you pay the penalties so that's the, uh, discouraging a lot of people. I flew in Monday from Hong Kong with about 35 of my students. We flew on from um, Toronto to Montreal, and I checked to see what kind of plane it was. But I'd be happy for the students that I'd be on Max 8 in Canada or the U.S., because the kind of issue that they've had with an Indonesian plane is one that Canadian pilots uh, and American pilots would be comfortable dealing with because of the kind of flying experience they often have. But you look in the high-growth markets, particularly in Asia, they've been pressing people into services pilots that don't have the kind of experience that is required typically in Canada or the U.S. And so it's more of an issue in those countries from a viewpoint of the pilots dealing with any issues that might come along. Yeah, and that might speak to uh, one sort of uh, current theory out there based on what some pilots are saying is apparently the plane uh, instrumentation brings its nose down, oh, apparently reading it as a, as a rise in elevation that's a little steeper than what's actually occurring. And maybe, to your point, maybe an inexperienced pilot uh, couldn't handle that, whereas an experienced pilot could figure it out and deal with it. Well, something where, you know, a lot of pilots in Canada would, have, would be private uh, plane pilots, so it would spend a couple thousand hours flying, and so it would practice stalls and things like that. So when something like a, a stall came along, they would be able to deal with it because they've done it a number of times in the past. And, and so I think there's a bit of a difference between the pilot f workforce in the U.S. and Canada than in certainly Asia and the, and the fast-growing parts of the world, where I think they could deal with it. But it may be that the minister might say, we're going to join much of the rest of the world and shut down the, the fleets, which will be cause some problems for WestJet and Air Canada because it's a substantial part of their fleets. From Boeing's perspective, I know they pushed out some press releases uh, uh, trying to sort of uh, firm up the ground they're standing on. But from a business point of view, they're, they're kind of in the crosshairs here. They're definitely taking uh, some collateral damage. Um, are they at risk here, or should they change their tactics? What do you think? Well, something where, uh, you know, it, it probably depends on what the black boxes say and what's the cause of it. They appear to know the cause of the Indonesian one and have sent out, and they are working on software to solve the problem. That, you know, they're obviously working day and night on to make it happen because from Boeing's viewpoint, this is their most important plane. They have uh, over 5,000 orders for it, and it's really the future of Boeing in terms of revenue and profitability to a considerable degree. So they can't screw this up. Now, you might remember back in 2013, there was the Dreamliner problem. They were grounded for 123 days because of um, 
uh, lithium-ion batteries. So something where uh, that was an issue at the time, but they cleared it up, and we flew on a Dreamliner actually a couple times, and, and they're genuinely a pleasure to fly on because the, uh, there's more air pressure in it, so it's easier to fly. The, the uh, windows are big, and it's, you know, it's a very good plane, and it's very well received around the world. So they had a problem six, seven years ago, which they dealt with well, so they can deal with this, but this is really an important plane for Boeing's f- future. So it's something they have uh, put a lot of. They're going to put a lot of time and energy into. They have, and they will continue to, including probably pressure on the U.S. government. And not to downplay the seriousness of what's going on, because there's there's been lives lost. We got two two plane crashes, and we're trying to sort out uh, what's going on with this particular model. If there's if there's something uh, if there's something going on with this particular model, but it occurs to me that in this day and age of instant communication uh, and st- a story like this, which seems to be gathering a lot of momentum in the headlines, and then with the uh, with the addition of social media, uh, people's concerns tend to get amplified. Uh, whereas in the past, maybe there would have been you know uh, some time to kind of uh, rationalize or determine what the facts are and then react accordingly. Does that play into it? Because I know these sort of, um, you know, I don't know how to phrase it, sort of social media uh, waves of reaction can broadside businesses in any number of ways. And we're certainly seeing that to some degree here. Well, that's probably true, but it's also that compared to a few years ago, you can find, you know, it's easier to find out uh, on the web what if you're off flying on a Max 8. So you can just check that out. Where in the past, it would have been more work, you wouldn't know how to do it, and so it'd be something you just kind of accept and go along with it. So that, that amount of information that people have available to them and that they can access with their capabilities has gone up. And so I think that's made it more problematic for, for, uh, for Boeing in this particular case. Um, but I think also uh, the media rightly are putting pressure on Boeing to get some resolution here. And it was truly not safe. Uh, you know, Transport Canada, FAA, and the U.S. should stop the flights as well. Do you think pressure is building on, on you know, Mark Garneau to, to, in fact, do that? I mean, we look at, as I, as I began the interview, I mean, a large portion of the world is, has done something. Um, you know, should he stay the course or should he make an adjustment here? Well, something where he listened to an expert panel yesterday, which I've done work with the uh, Canadian Transport Agency out of Ottawa and Gatineau, and they are a conservative group, and they're going to be very careful. And number one issue in the airline industry, along with the, manu- uh, the manufacturer, the FAA, and the CTA, is safety. And, and that's the, the mantra in the airline industry is, above all, be safe. And I think that's what, what does, and does prevail. So something where a group like that comes and says, we think that's safe, I'm pretty confident that that's what the experts believe and the evidence uh, supports. On a very positive note, I mean, compared to 20, 30 years ago, airplane travel, airline travel is safer than it was. I mean, it was safe 20 years ago. It's even safer today. And the chances of an accident are very, very slim indeed, thankfully. But obviously, if you're the family involved, you know, it's an incredible event. Yeah, I know, without a doubt. And uh, our hearts go out to those families. I can't even imagine. Uh, Carl, uh, appreciate the time this morning and adding your perspective to this ongoing story. Always a pleasure. That was Dr. Carl Moore, professor with McGill University's Days Hotel Faculty of Management, discussing the ongoing story and uh, controversy, I guess, surrounding the Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft. And that's it for today's edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow. 6.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.